Please remain standing and turn with me to Isaiah 40. This will be our Old Testament reading, the first 11 verses. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Pardon me, if you could stay standing, I forgot to read the most important part. Sorry about that. Thanks for your patience with me. Romans 5, 1 and 2. And this will be a short reading today, a shorter passage, because it is very rich and packed with meaning. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen. Be seated. If I say... On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. wonder if you know what year I have in mind. Hopefully you know. It's 1918. That is the, the date and time of the official end of World War I. For very long years, that war raging across Europe, and then all of a sudden there was... Peace. The guns fell silent. 
There was, of course, an armistice that had been signed. And that armistice, what it did was it brought about a change in status, a change in the relationship between uh, Germany, the countries associated with Germany, and um, the allied countries. Now, this was a very imperfect piece. Um, In fact, what has been called, uh, what had been called a war to end all wars, um, ended with treaties that people would later describe as a peace to end all peace. That ended up resulting in all kinds of wars in future years, including, and especially just a couple decades later, the biggest war, World War II. Romans 5 here opens with a declaration of peace. Peace with God. What's happened here is that there has been a change in status, a change in the relationship between God and the people of Christ. Of course, very much unlike that peace that ended World War I, the peace that Paul is talking about here is not superficial. It's not merely temporary. It's not merely formal. This is a true peace. This is a lasting peace, a permanent peace, a peace that involves actual reconciliation between the people who parties who had previously been in conflict. You'll remember that the main theme of chapters 3 and 4 leading up to this moment has been justification through faith alone. Right? We've been talking about that uh, for a while. Now, God declares that we are righteous, not because of any righteous things that we have done, but because we are trusting in Christ, who is perfectly righteous. We, we, we are receiving, through faith, His complete and perfect record of obedience as a free gift given to us by grace. So here in chapter 5, what Paul's doing is he's taking that train of thought a step further. He's beginning to describe here the impact of justification on our living relationship with God now and the present and the future. He's talking about the way that we experience and live out the Christian life as a result of that great fact of justification. In other words, God's declaration that you are righteous in Christ transforms your relationship with God through Christ. You get that? God's declaration that you are righteous in Christ transforms your relationship with God through Christ. That's the main theme these first two verses. If you look at the way these two verses are organized, you can see three things Paul says here that you have through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those three things are peace, access, and hope. Peace with God, access into grace, and hope of the glory of God. We're going to look at each of those in turn. But first, I want you to notice how verse 1 begins. Paul starts by saying, Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And so you have to understand, first of all, that we're we're coming into this passage at the conclusion of a whole big argument that Paul's been making since at least chapter 3, really ever since chapter 1. Remember how God reveals his righteous character in two ways, Paul's been saying. He reveals it, first of all, through um, the law in his wrath against sinners who break the law. 
But now, he said in chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he's talked about how even back in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And now God is doing the same thing for people who trust in the saving work of Jesus. So this is where we left off last time with chapter 4, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also, because it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, and we've got to try to kind of ignore the big chapter number and the big you know heading if you have the ESV Bible where it makes it look like a different section. It is a different section. It is a new, uh, it is a, a turn, a transition in Paul's thought. But there's this flow, right? It's, this is one um, flow of thought here. Uh, we're, we're being uh, counted righteous as we believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that follows here is the fruit, it's the results, the outcome of that great fact of justification through faith in Christ that Paul's been explaining in chapters 3 and 4. He's showing that, yes, Yes, justification is a legal declaration. It's an official pronouncement. But it's more than that. It's not not as though it's just an adjustment on paper, that there's some file somewhere that, well, somebody pulled out the file and put a different stamp on it and put it back in the file. It's not just some kind of righteousness certificate that God gives to you. And the reason this is so important is that sin is not just a paper problem. It's not just something in your file against you. It is God's just and righteous verdict against you as a sinner. It's God's declaration that you are not righteous, that you're a lawbreaker, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. That's not just a matter of cosmic like bookkeeping. So you were created, in the first place, for communion with God. You were created for a bond of love and everlasting joy and blessing and fellowship with Him. So what that guilty verdict is, that's a formal declaration that that communion and love and joy and blessing and fellowship cannot take place. So your status as a sinner is not merely official, it has this major relational effect. It it creates this massive breach, this brokenness between you and the Lord. And so in the same way, Paul is showing here that justification then isn't merely official either. It also has this major relational effect. Justification by faith in Christ reverses that problem. It reverses all that brokenness, that messed up relationship between you and your creator. And so, so that instead of enmity and exclusion and dread, which you had before, Christ now brings about this peace and access and hope. Okay, so this first fruit of justification then is peace with God. 
to be a sinner and not justified, that means that you're at war with God. It means that you're an enemy of God. And to fight that war, of course, is ultimately going to be a losing battle. Um, It's interesting to think about when when people talk about peace, especially spiritual peace today, um, we're we're, kind of inclined to think of it as a a state of mind. Um, There are all kinds of ways that people will offer to help you to achieve this kind of sense of inner peace, a feeling of inner peace. Uh, We'll think of peace as opposed to stress, peace as opposed to anxiety, peace maybe as opposed to depression, things like this. Those things are important, and what Paul is saying here is relevant for all of those experiences of turmoil in our souls. It's going to be down the line here. But what he's talking about here when he says peace with God is something even more basic than that. Because when he talks about peace here, he's talking about peace as opposed to war. Peace as opposed to war. See, the, the, the signing of that armistice between the Allies and Germany in 1918, that was not just signatures on paper. It actually resulted in the silence of the guns in Europe. No more shrapnel. No more gas. No more bullets. No more bayonets. No more going over the top. There was an actual consequence of real peace. It was an official legal document, but it transformed the relationship between those nations. So the hostilities really stopped at least for a little while. See, Jesus Christ, then, is the great peacemaker. That's who he is. In fact, that's one of the ways the Bible states the reason why Jesus came. There are various ways the Bible puts this. Jesus came to fill in the blank. There are a few ways we could answer that question accurately, and they're kind of all complementary, different perspectives on Jesus' mission But one way of putting it is that Jesus came to make peace between you and God. It says this in Colossians, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Think about at Jesus' birth. What did the angels sing to the shepherds? They say, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. See, Jesus came to make peace between you and God. Ephesians 2, in fact, goes so far as to say, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Uh, When you read the prophets, one of the great statements of of woe and judgment that you'll hear sometimes is when the Lord says, Behold, I am against you. Chilling words to hear from the God of the covenant. The Lord is a warrior. Exodus 15 says, The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle, Psalm 24 calls him. And so to be at enmity with the Lord, for God to be your enemy, for God to be against you, the one who rides on the clouds is his chariot. The God who commands the thunder and the lightning and and the fury of hell to be his enemy, that is to have no hope. No hope. But, if you've been justified by faith, 
what do you have? You have peace with that same God. So when God sees you as righteous in Christ, you are no longer his enemy. Remember what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, look, I've called you friends. When you're justified by faith in Christ, God is no longer against you. God is for you. And if God be for us, who can be against us, right? As Paul's going to say later in this book. See, sometimes in the Christian life, we can be tempted um, to think of God as still being against us. Think of God as our adversary. Think, to think that there's somehow like a, a competition between you and God, and you need to work harder to win out in that competition, maybe to, to get God to give you something that he's naturally kind of reluctant to give. He's withholding it, but if you do well enough, then maybe he'll, okay, well, I'll let you have a little bit of your allowance that I've been withholding from you. Um, or sometimes in the Christian life, we can be tempted to think that God is still angry with us. Um, that even though you're sort of in the door of the kingdom of God, you still have, you still feel this burden to prove yourself to this God who is impossible to please. For some of us, maybe it's, we felt that way in our families growing up. Maybe as parents, we have to think or. The way that we treat our children is it reflecting the kind of character of God that Paul's describing for us here because so we've got to believe what this passage is telling us, that we have peace with God in Christ. That if you're in Christ, God is not your opponent. God is not angry with you anymore. God is not hard to please because you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're in Christ, God is for you. He is on your side, 100%. Never to be your enemy again. Because you belong to Jesus. So how else could it be? After after Paul says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he opens up a couple other things that we have. Also through Christ, we have access and hope. And these two other things kind of further unpack, expand what it looks like to have peace with God. What peace with God means for you. So Paul continues his thought from verse 1 when he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay, so let's think about this idea of access. What does that mean? Um, Every year... Uh, you guys know I go to this pastor's conference over in Elizabethtown um, where I, I'll, I'll check in on the first day and they'll give me this uh, card. Um, it's this uh, like RFID card that gives me access to the dorm building where I'm supposed to stay. It's on this college campus. So you scan the card against the electronic RFID reader by the door and the door clicks. It's this great sound. I love it when it goes and it unlocks and... You have access to that building that other people don't have. Um, Or you can think about another mental image. Think about a harbor, um, a a safe place for ships in the middle of a a great storm at sea, maybe a hurricane or something. And um, that harbor maybe is surrounded by these treacherous rocks most of the way around. But there's this one deep channel 
a deep channel where a ship of any size can get access to those calm, sheltered waters of that harbor. Or maybe another illustration from the Bible, you could think about Queen Esther. Remember Esther, uh, how the the deal was that anybody who um, went into the king's presence without being invited um, could be put to death unless the king did what? Unless he extended his golden scepter and permitted that person access to his presence. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, one of their great privileges that they had was to have access to every tree of the garden, uh, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But in particular, what did they have access to? In particular, they had access to the tree of life and all that that represented. Their access to the tree of life was a symbol of their access to God, to the presence of God, to their un, that unbroken communion and fellowship with God that they experienced there. And so when they sinned, remember what happened to that access. God banished them from the garden. And he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They had no more access. Their access was cut off. They were locked out. And so in the sacrificial system of Israel, God built into that system these ways of showing them that he was going to provide a way of access back into his presence. He was going to do that through a sacrifice of atonement. But you think about in ancient Israel, even that was very limited. That access to the most holy place of God's presence, it was limited so that only the high priest could go there, and, and he could only go once a year, and he could only go once a year after he had sacrificed, made a sacrifice to atone for his own sins, not to mention the sins of the people. And so God was showing that in his grace, he was making a way for his people to have access into his gracious presence, but he was also showing through all of those limitations and boundaries that that way of access was not yet fully revealed, that there was something better to come. That's why it's so precious when the book of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, where did he go? It says he entered once for all into the holy places, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And it goes on to say that by doing that, what Jesus did is he made a new and living way for you to be able to enter into that holy, heavenly place by his blood. To be able to draw near in full assurance of faith. Be able to come boldly before the throne of grace where you can find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Because in Christ you have access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? First Peter 3. That he might bring us to God. Might bring us there where we couldn't go before. And so because you have been declared righteous in Christ, you now have access through Christ to approach God. To approach God and not be consumed. To worship God and not be struck down where you stand. 
to be able to pray to God and not, and not be ignored, to be heard, God to care what you say, listen and answer. Think about the kind of access that you'd love to have to, to things just in everyday life. What if you had like a backstage pass to this awesome concert that you had tickets to? Or what if, what, if you, what if you somehow got a media pass, like a press pass into the clubhouse of your, your favorite baseball team? You go and talk to all the players like the, like the press does. Imagine if you had access to the Oval Office. You go and talk to the president whenever you wanted to, tell him whatever you thought you needed to say to him. Think about all the amazing opportunities that you could have with that kind of access. Paul's telling you here that you have, you have access to the throne room of God. Um, one of my goals is to work hard as your pastor for each of you to feel like you have access to me, that it's easy to get a hold of me, to talk with me if you want to. But um, I'm going to tell you now, I'm sorry, none of, none of you are ever going to have the same level of access to me that my children do. That my children will always have to talk to their dad. You see, through Jesus, you're children of God. You have access to him, that level of family access to your heavenly father. So I want to ask you, what are you doing with that access to God? How much are you actually in his presence? How could this access to God that Jesus has given you, how could that transform the way you think about your devotional life, the, that motivation that maybe you feel like you sometimes lack to, to read God's word, to pray, to be in his presence, to com- have communion with him? How could this transform the way you think about family devotions, family worship, what that even is, what that could look like in your household for your family together to experience this access to God, to go into his presence together in your home? How does, how does this change the way you think about what coming to church is all about, what it means to participate in corporate worship with the church and how you, how you feel about that, how you experience it when you're here? We have access to God together. We're in his very presence through Christ, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Use those words all the time. This is what we're talking about. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And that is why, then, we can rejoice in hope. This hope of the glory of God. And that's the third thing. Uh, you remember back in chapter 3, Paul put his finger on that problem that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you fall short of that glory of God, well, then that glory of God um, turns out to be not good news for you, right? Because that glory of God, which we think of as something is so beautiful and wonderful, and it is, but that glory, remember, is so bright, it's so pure, it's so holy that you cannot withstand it. It will destroy you because it is so glorious and you're so sinful. So you remember Mount Sinai for Israel, how nobody was permitted to go up and touch that mountain. Why? Because God's glory was there. It was to protect the people from being destroyed. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews says. See, when you have been justified by faith in Christ, all that changes 
Not because God has changed. Not because God has softened or become less holy or less glorious in order to accommodate you. It's not like he's dialed it down and said, well, I guess i I got to turn it down a little bit because they can't handle all of the glory. No, it's quite the contrary. What God has done is he has given you in Christ the perfect righteousness that can stand before him, faultless and spotless. And so when you think about the, the final judgment when Christ returns... Well, if if you're not justified, then you ought to anticipate that day with great dread because you will be confronted by and consumed by the glory of God that you cannot withstand apart from Christ. But you see, if you are justified, then you can anticipate that day of glory with hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And if you look at the footnote there, you can see that that word rejoice is not... um, kind of some neutral, kind of bland, like, happiness. Um, it's the word for boasting or exulting. Um, not boasting or exulting out of arrogance or bragging. It's more the, the, the boasting or exulting. It's the attitude that you might use when you say words like, we won, or she said yes, or I graduated, or I got the job, or... Mother and baby are doing great. That, that, those kinds of things. That kind of full-hearted, confident, exultant joy. So when you're, when you're justified and you think about the glory of God, you can think, yes, God is glorious. And Christ has made a way for me to be able to approach that glory without fear. And I'm going to go there and it's not going to consume me. It's going to shine through me as I finally am able to, to start doing what I was created and redeemed to do, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As Titus 2 puts it, it says we're, we're waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're hoping for, is Christ's glory to appear. Listen, the glory of God. We talk about God's glory all the time. we just got to understand God's glory is bad news for sinners. God's glory is good news for justified sinners in Christ. As Colossians 1 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. One last thought. Don't miss how insistent Paul is to repeat that all of these things, peace, access, hope, all these things come to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody wants peace. Everybody is looking for hope. Um, these things, peace, access, hope, these are big selling points uh, that different people will use. People, companies, politicians, temptations. They're going to offer to you peace offer you some kind of special access behind the scenes, offer you some kind of hope for the future. Things can be different and better than what you're experiencing now. And, and, and they'll use those things as selling points to win you over, to get you to buy whatever it is they're selling. But I just want to warn you and encourage you today as the people of God, forget about the cheap knockoffs of peace and access and hope that the world is peddling to you. 
that sin is peddling to you to deceive you and to cheat you out of the real thing. Don't try to get peace, access, hope for their own sake or from some other source because it is Christ who gives you the real thing and Christ alone. You hold on to Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, this is such good news. I can hardly do better than simply to repeat it again and praise you for it, that we've been justified by faith and because of that we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the access that you've given us by faith into this grace in which we stand right now at this living moment. And Lord, we rejoice together in the hope of your glory. And we ask that uh, you would help us to take these things to heart, to carry them with us, not to forget them when we go from this place today. And now show us these same things that you just told us. Through the Lord's Supper we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.